Well, you know how most of the great artists learned to paint? They started off by copying others. Before they developed their own unique style, they learned the basics from all the greats who had come before them. So, for example, Picasso didn't start off his career by painting the, the, the crazy, wild, abstract art we know him for today. They start off by copying artists like Degas. It's a great way to learn. Most of us learn better just by, by an example from those who have come before. Same is true for athletes. Most of us learn better from examples than explanation. I remember when my friend was teaching me the basics of golf, never golfed before, didn't know much about it, and he was telling me all, you know, all the basics, just instructing me how to stand and slightly bend the knees and rotate your shoulders and how to follow through in the ball and your swing and so forth. And it was all good. I remember telling him after a while, like, this is, this is good and all, but can you just show me? Just, just show me what you're talking about. Give me a, an example of what you mean. A picture is worth a thousand words, and so is a good example. And this, I know you can tell, applies to the Christian life. After you become a disciple of Christ Jesus, you turn from your sins, you place your faith in him to save you, you embark on a life of following Jesus. Christ becomes our Lord, our standard, and he says, follow me. We are to live out our salvation by loving like Jesus, speaking like Jesus, praying like Jesus, serving like Jesus, and so forth. And the New Testament in particular is filled with so many instructions on, on how to do this. This is how you follow Jesus. This is what it means. But at the same time, God in his wisdom has also included in Scripture many examples of what this looks like. Godly men and women who show us, here, here's how, it, how you do it. Here's how it's done. And these examples can be so valuable. Of course, we're aiming to follow Christ. But, but what does that really look like? In, in a dark and hostile world? How do we really do this? How do we wager against sin, or wager, wage war against sin, rather? How do you love unloving people? How do you really love even your enemy? Well, the examples of Scripture show us. These men and women, they're living pictures, and they put flesh and bone on all the instructions of Scripture, and they just show us the way. And as these men and women follow Christ, so as we follow them, we'll know we're headed in the right direction, closer to God. This is why Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he tells the churches, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ Jesus. He basically says, hey, follow me as I'm following Christ, you can follow me. And that's true. To the degree that Paul followed Christ, we can follow him, and he'll take us to the same, to the same place. And that's true, actually, of any person. To the degree that any person follows Christ, so we can follow them as an example. And hence Paul said over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he said, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So you can picture like this giant conga line of, of discipleship. All these people, they're attached to Christ, and anyone who's really living out discipleship, where Christ said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Anyone who's really living that out, you can follow them, and they will take you to Christ as they are following Christ. And this morning, we're going to see a, a perfect example of such examples in our passage in Philippians chapter 2. So you can open your Bible now to Philippians chapter 2. Once again, to Philippians 
chapter 2. And we've been going through Philippians verse by verse, and we've already seen emerge a very clear theme. The Philippian church was battling the sins of pride and selfishness and strife. It was leading to division. And like a candle snuffer, that, that puts out their Christian witness. Instead, they need to humble themselves and serve one another selflessly, sacrificially. That produces unity and it bolsters their witness. This central message, of course, is very relevant to the Philippian church, but it's also relevant to, to every church because we all still struggle with those same sins which so easily divide. And so Philippians is filled with all these explanations and instructions for the church on, on how to unify, addressing this division. But Paul also knows that sometimes we just we learn better from examples. And so not by accident, in Philippians, he's included several examples that exemplify everything he's trying to say. We have, of course, the ultimate example of Christ, who perfectly pictures for us this humble, selfless, sacrificial service of others. Paul also pointed out his own example. He wasn't boasting, but he wanted the Philippian church to know that he was rightly responding in the Lord to all of his hardship in much harder circumstances. And now here at the end of chapter 2, we find two more examples. Two men that Paul commends who embody what it is to, to follow Christ in this world. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now granted, there's a very specific historical context here. But there's also a timeless lesson. Historically, the end of chapter 2, it's all about Paul explaining the travel plans of these men, himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I gave you the long version of this background last week, and in case you weren't here, I'll give you the short version right now. After hearing that Paul had been imprisoned, Philippian church became greatly concerned, so they sent one of their own, this guy named Epaphroditus, to travel to Rome and to minister to Paul, to be, to be like his servant, to help him out with his needs. And, and Epaphroditus was supposed to stay there, stay in Rome, serving Paul, but that's not what happened. Paul, on purpose, sent Epaphroditus back home way early, for a good reason, but it could cause confusion and misunderstanding. And to ward off such misunderstanding, it's actually one of the main reasons Paul wrote this letter, Philippians. It was, it, was gonna, it was to travel with Epaphroditus, explaining to the church why their representative was coming home so soon. In addition, Paul also explains why he's not sending Timothy to them. They, they were expecting Timothy to come, but Paul needed Timothy at the moment. Hopefully, though, as Paul gets released from his imprisonment, both he and Timothy will be able to visit the Philippian church shortly. All right, so that's like the historical side of the passage. That, that's what this was about. That's why he's writing. But at the same time, you also have to realize that Paul is not just giving us the travel plans of these men. There, there's more going on here. As we found, that he also elevates these men, not as you know, like superstars to be worshipped, but as examples to be followed. Because it just so happens that both of these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they perfectly embody exactly what Paul wanted the Philippian church to learn. All the lessons he's been teaching them in Philippians, these two guys, they're like living pictures of that. And so he has a perfect opportunity here. As he tells them about their travel plans, 
he also props them up. These men are to be followed. They're showing you what it means to, to serve Christ in this world. And just as all churches need to learn this lesson, so Timothy and Epaphroditus, they stand as universal examples now of following Christ. Their footsteps have been fossilized in Scripture, showing us the way to Christ. And as you, as you follow them, as you now trace in their footsteps living for Christ, you will likewise yourself be following Christ. And that's what we want to do today, to further behold the encouraging example of these men who show us how to live for Christ in, in a dark world. We started into this last week, devoting all of our time and attention to the example of Timothy. And now we come to finish chapter 2, devoting our attention today to the example of Epaphroditus. And with all that in mind, let's read now the passage, Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30. Philippians 2, look at verse 25. Paul continues and says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed, because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Well, let's go ahead and start off by going through this passage, taking a closer look at all, all of the detail, and what we'll swing back around at the end and, and then really look at the example of Epaphroditus. So we'll begin with number one, the role of Epaphroditus. The role of Epaphroditus. Again, verse 25 He says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Here's actually the first time that Paul introduces us to Epaphroditus in this letter. Now, I don't know about you, I don't meet too many people named Epaphroditus today. Although it was a much more common name back then, the name means lovely or charming. And it was derived from the, the name Aphrodite, which was the pagan goddess of love. So at the very least, we can figure that Epaphroditus, rather, he had pagan parents and probably a pagan upbringing. When and how he became a Christian, we just don't know. But at some point, he turned away from his vain idols and, and turned toward the living God. And then Epaphroditus became impassionate about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that by how Paul describes him. In relation to himself, Paul describes Epaphroditus here in in an escalating manner. You see, first he calls him his brother in verse 25. It's one of Paul's favorite terms to refer to a fellow beloved believer. When you come to salvation in Christ, believing in him as Lord, God becomes your father and all of his children become your brothers and your sisters in the faith. 
And many actually find that their, their spiritual bonds, their spiritual family is stronger and closer than their own maternal family, so to speak. This was true of the early church. And in the Roman world, they just didn't understand how these Christians, they're calling each other brother. They're not even related. They just didn't understand that. But this is the unity of the body of Christ. In fact, Paul, he just so happens to use this term for, for brother the most in Philippians. He just, it's all over the place when you, when you look, at, look for it. And Epaphroditus is no exception. He is Paul's fellow believer. Secondly, uh, Epaphroditus is also Paul's fellow worker, he says. Here's another favorite term used by Paul, although this one's more reserved. Every Christian was his brother or sister, but not everyone was necessarily his fellow worker. Paul reserved this title for those who were engaged with him in the active spread of the gospel, in the gospel ministry. He always used it in regards to those who dedicated their their lives to spreading the good news of Christ Jesus. And so he calls Timothy a fellow worker, and Titus, Priscilla, and Achilla were fellow workers, as were Luke and Mark. It's a pretty significant list right there of Paul's fellow workers. And you can add Epaphroditus to that company. This tells you at the very least what Paul thought of him. Epaphroditus was not just like a back row Baptist. You know, the guys who always keep church at arm's length. They, they, they are around the periphery of the church. They never really get involved, and they certainly never evangelize. That was not Epaphroditus. He was all in. He was committed, like Timothy, to the furtherance, furtherance of the gospel. And although we don't hear his name elsewhere in Scripture, Don't let that lead you to believe that Epaphroditus was a lightweight. Paul calling him his fellow worker, it's it's a big deal. It's not like an impersonal office relationship. These men were partners in the gospel. And accordingly, Paul thirdly calls him his fellow soldier. You see that? Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, just escalating. It's an even rarer term used by Paul, and he reserved it for those who not only ministered the gospel with him, but suffered for the gospel with him. It's like Paul said over in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And later in that chapter, Paul goes on to speak of his own suffering hardship for the sake of the gospel, how he was wrongly imprisoned just for preaching Christ, unjustly persecuted. And the ministry of the gospel is full of such hardships for those who are going to follow Christ in this world. They will, the world will readily make Christ's followers suffer on account of their faith. But Paul nonetheless says, well, suffer hardship with me. And Epaphroditus, he he was doing that. Like Paul, like Timothy, he had risen to the call. He had truly picked up his cross to follow Christ. And he was willing to to suffer some hardship for the sake of the gospel. Not too many people like that today. Are you willing to suffer hardship for the sake of the gospel? Well, indeed, as we'll see later, Epaphroditus even came close to death for the sake of 
Christ and the gospel. I can't personally relate, but I can see how soldiers who wage war together in the trenches, how they would have such an unbreakable bond thereafter. Well, Paul and Epaphroditus, they they waged spiritual war together in the trenches. They fought the good fight of the faith. And so Paul, he has no reservations in commending Epaphroditus to the Philippian church. That's not all, though. In addition to relating Epaphroditus to himself, verse 25, Paul also mentions and reminds the Philippian church of his role before them. And so he describes Epaphroditus as your messenger and the minister to my need. The word for messenger here in the Greek is apostolos, which is the word we have for apostle. Now, this doesn't mean Epaphroditus was formally an apostle. He was not. The word apostle just means messenger or delegate. And it was sometimes used broadly to speak of a representative for the church. So Epaphroditus, he was an apostle like Peter or Paul who had seen the risen Lord and was commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel. But he was the representative of the Philippian church. We can't say with certainty, but it seems like Epaphroditus was was not an elder or pastor or, or deacon in the church. Otherwise, almost surely Paul would have said so in the letter. So it seems like he's just a guy. He's just a faithful guy in the church chosen for this mission. But just think about, though, what does it say about him? We don't know much about him. This is it. This is all we know about Epaphroditus in Scripture, this passage. But what does it say about him that he was chosen for this mission? Remember, the mission is to go on a roughly 1,000-mile trip by foot to Rome, carrying a large sum of money, facing all, all these dangers. And then when you get to Rome, stay there and be Paul's servant. That, that's the mission. You don't pick a flaky person for that job. You don't pick the person with irregular attendance who might not show up to church if there's a good football game on. You don't pick that guy for this mission. You pick the most reliable dependable, and faithful person in the room. And that was Epaphroditus. He was their representative in this regard. Okay, so that's the role of Epaphroditus. He's Paul's brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, as well as the Philippian church's representative minister. Now, that being said, you might wonder, why is Paul even saying this? Because doesn't the Philippian church, didn't they, didn't they already know Epaphroditus? Like, they already know who he is. This is not news to them. They know he's all these things. So why does Paul feel the need to, like, introduce Epaphroditus to them or, or prop him up? Why is he saying all these good things about him as if they didn't already know that? Well, the answer has to do with Epaphroditus' early return. Look back at the beginning of verse 25 again. He says, but I, I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus. As we learn, Paul, he, he's not sending Timothy back as planned. But he, he's sending Epaphroditus back way ahead of schedule. But he knew this could cause confusion or concern. And Paul wanted to ward that off. It's like the difference between an honorable discharge and a dishonorable discharge in the military. And I'm sure you know the difference between the two. Imagine you've got a close friend who joins the army. He makes it through basic training. He's deployed, and you're proud of him. He's serving his country. But then you hear he's been discharged, 
and he's coming home way ahead of his term. And naturally, you might assume the worst, like, well, something bad, something terrible must have happened. And you might even think, like, did he do something wrong? Did, did he commit a crime? Did he desert? Like, what did he do to get discharged from the military? But then you get a letter saying he's been honorably discharged. He had a family emergency. He needed to come home, take care of a family member who needed treatment. That would, that would change everything. You'd say, well, okay, I get it then. You know, he's, he's, he left with honor, and hey, that's a good thing. Well, in a similar manner, the Philippian church, they may have been concerned about Epaphroditus' service record. And they heard that he had gotten sick, but still they may have wondered, why, why was he discharged by Paul? Why was he let go early? Did, did he do something wrong? Did, did he desert Paul? In reality, Paul was giving Epaphroditus an honorable discharge. That's what this is. He he wants to speak so highly of him that they would know, no, he's done nothing wrong. He didn't flee. He didn't desert. He didn't fall short. He served well. He was a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He's just sending him home early. And so next we find that Paul describes or details the nature of why he's sending him home, home so early. It needs explanation. So next we find, number two, the return of Epaphroditus. The return of Epaphroditus. And Paul explains why he's sending him home early, starting in verse 26. Verse 26, he's sending Epaphroditus, he says, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. It's actually a very interesting situation. We can't be dogmatic here because we're reading in between the lines, but we can try and piece together what seemingly took place. And, and here's, here's my best stab at it, given what we know. So we know it all starts when the Philippian church, they heard that Paul had been imprisoned. And so they get very worried, they're concerned. So somewhere along the line, though, they decide, you know, let's, let's take up an offering. Let's take up a collection for Paul in Rome. We know that during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, even though he was under guard 24-7, he was allowed to stay in his own rented quarters. He had his own, like, little place. So that meant he had expenses, though. In the Philippian church, they wanted just to contribute to his need. But now, that means they need someone to deliver that gift to Paul. You can't just wire the money over. And they also, they want someone, you know, it would be nice to have someone to stay with Paul, keep serving, maybe get a job and, and just keep supporting him on the side or just minister to his need. They wanted someone to, to take the money and then stay there with Paul. They couldn't all travel to Rome, so they needed a representative. That, that's what you do. And so this is where Epaphroditus comes in. We don't know the circumstances, but somehow he was chosen for this mission. And as I already said, that speaks volumes of his character and his faithfulness. And so off he goes. But most likely, he wasn't alone. Whether by land or sea, it's still like roughly a thousand-mile journey. Back then, there was no countryside drive. It would have been arduous, dangerous. And this type of journey wasn't done alone. You You just don't go by yourself. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see examples of the Macedonian churches sending an offering to Jerusalem including the Church of Philippi, and their, their delegates never traveled alone. So although it doesn't say, you know, most likely he didn't go alone. 
he had a couple of guys there with him on this journey to Rome. But then somewhere along the line, Epaphroditus gets sick. We don't know what kind of illness this was, but whatever it was, it nearly killed him. That we know. Paul says he was sick to the point of death. Today, when you get sick, you might feel like you're dying, but most times you're, you're not, you're just fine. In the ancient world, though, not being able to diagnose and treat disease like today, anytime you got sick, it could be your last. Anytime you got sick, it could be the last time. Now, it's a true Epaphroditus, he may have gotten sick when he already arrived in Rome thereafter, but, but our text down in verse 30 seems to suggest that Epaphroditus, his sickness was in connection with his trip to Paul. And also, if he gets sick on route to Rome, it explains some things, like how the Philippian church heard about it. <clears throat> it says in verse 26, they heard he was sick. So that means somewhere along the line, somebody had to go from Epaphroditus and travel back to the Philippian church and tell them, hey, your guy Epaphroditus, your, your messenger, he got really sick. He almost died. In fact, he, he, when I left him, he was deathly ill. Because that's the last thing the Philippian church heard. And so most likely it was one of Epaphroditus' traveling companions that, that left and went back to Philippi to let them know, like, hey, we got a situation here. But Epaphroditus, he recovered, and either way, he, he pressed on. He didn't give up. He didn't turn back. He made it to Rome. We know that much. He made it to Rome. He delivered the gift, and he ministered to Paul. Now, thereafter, though, Paul could tell, like, something's, something's wrong with this guy. He's distressed, he says in verse 26. This word for distressed means full of heaviness. It's the same word used of Christ in Gethsemane. That he's in anguish, Epaphroditus. He's, like, sick to his stomach. He's not homesick, per se, but he's sick to his stomach. Why? Because now he knows that his home church knows that he was sick Literally to death. They had fallen deathly ill. But that's the last thing they heard. So they are still there thinking a thousand miles away. They're thinking Epaphroditus is, is, is dying. He's, he's sick to death. He, he might literally have already be dead. What happened to him? Did he even make it to Rome? They would have all these questions and concerns. Now I know this is, it's a lot of background, but it helps explain the sentiment of our text now. This, this guy, he's been through a lot. Right? He didn't just show up to Rome. He's been through a lot. He almost died on this mission. And again, verse 27 says, For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Thankfully, God spared Epaphroditus from whatever sickness he had, and, and he recovered. This is God's mercy on Epaphroditus, and also God's mercy on Paul. Because if he had died on route or there with Paul, I mean, it would really just pile up the sorrow on Paul. He had enough things going on being imprisoned in Rome. It's the last thing he needed. So for now, though, for Epaphroditus' sake, Paul's going to just send him back. Like That's what he needs. He needs to just go back to his people and be relieved. He had served well. He completed his mission. And, and now it, he's being honorably discharged. Paul is going to send him back. Also, for, for the church's sake and Paul's own sake, this is the best thing. Look at verse 28. Paul says, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned 
about you. Paul doesn't want the Philippian church to be worried sick over their beloved Epaphroditus. Just imagine you've got a son and he goes off to war. That would be worrisome enough. But then you get a letter saying he's been injured in combat. That's all it says, though. It doesn't say how or how significant. Nothing, no more details. Just he was injured in combat. And then pretend it's before the age of communication. So it might take you another month before you hear anything else. And now you can start to, to, to feel some of the worry that, that these people were feeling about each other, Philippians and, and Epaphroditus. And that uncertainty of, of how a loved one is doing, that uncertainty, that's what really drives you mad. It's just the, the what if. That's what produces all the worry. And as we're going to find out later, it seems like the Philippian church was prone to worry, chapter 4. And so Paul, he just figured, look, it's best just it's best for their sake, this Epaphroditus, go home. Just go back to your people. Paul himself had enough on his plate. I mean, he, he had his trial coming up before Caesar. He had opponents in Rome. He had his own share of troubles. Now he had to worry about the worries of the Philippian church. And he had to worry about the worries of Epaphroditus, who himself was worrying about the worries of the Philippian church. It's a lot of worry. And just you can end it all, just send Epaphroditus home, and it, it will help everybody. So you can see all, all around that that's why he did it. Epaphroditus, it's time to go home. Paul explains all this, though, that he has an honorable discharge to allay any fears the church might have. He wants to put them at ease concerning him and concerning Epaphroditus. And lastly, as Epaphroditus comes home, Paul wants to make sure that he receives a hero's welcome. And this brings us to number three, the reception of Epaphroditus. The reception of Epaphroditus. Look at verse 29. Paul says here at the end, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Epaphroditus, he didn't give up. He wasn't tired of serving. He wasn't disqualified. Wasn't looking for a change of scenery or a change of pace. He wasn't merely homesick. He was faithful to the end. This was merely an honorable discharge. And so the Philippian church, they should welcome him home like a soldier from war. This isn't to suggest that the Philippian church would not do so. But Paul wanted to make sure that he had his own stamp of approval on him. And this letter, the book of Philippians, in part, it served as like his discharge papers that Epaphroditus could show to the church as proof, like, look, I, I didn't blow it. Here's my honorable discharge. Here's the letter of Philippians, among other things. And though, therefore, they should celebrate his return. Paul says, hold men like him in high regard. This word means honor, esteem, value. Of course, only Christ is worthy of our exaltation and praise, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about respect. Show him respect. Like, you show deference and respect to your physical elders, so you should show deference and respect to those who are your spiritual elders. Those who have proven themselves worthy should be esteemed, he says. 
In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says such ministers should, are the worthy of double honor. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, he says regarding such sacrificial ministers, Paul says acknowledge such men. This is not talking about rolling out the red carpet before your pastor. And as a side note, there's a very toxic celebrity culture around pastors today that, that is not good. But it just means showing them honor by caring for them, supporting their needs, and, and really most of all, listen to them, heed their counsel. This most certainly applies to Epaphroditus because verse 30 says, he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me, Paul says. Now, real quick, regarding that last part, it might sound like Paul's insulting them. Like he's, you know, he's, he's completing what was deficient in your service to me. But that's not what he means, and that, that phrase kind of gets lost in translation a little bit. You think, you think of the word deficient in English, you think of failure. But no, later in chapter 4, Paul greatly praises them for their generous gift. They, they were not lacking in their gift. This word for deficient, though, it means lack or absence, And he's talking about their absence. Paul, in effect, is saying that Epaphroditus has made up for their absence. They couldn't be there. They couldn't serve Paul. They had no opportunity to go to Rome. But Epaphroditus could, and he did. And in so doing, he risked his life. He gambled with his life just to serve Paul and the gospel. That's what this word means in verse 30, risking, parabalumeo, it means, or rather it says in Greek, to throw aside, to voluntarily expose yourself to danger. This word was used of gamblers, those who take risks for the hope of gain. And we all know of those who gamble financially. You know, you're risking some money in the hopes of getting more money. That's gambling. Well, there's another type of gambler, the one who does not risk money. He risks his very life. You are putting your life on the table, in the hopes of getting back what? Well, fame, fortune, glory, something like that. You think of daredevils like Evil Knievel, who put his life on the line for, for what? For some fame, for some glory. Doesn't sound like a, a good return to me, a high risk reward ratio, and not, not a good bargain for me, but some people play that game. Some even gamble with their lives, literally for, for nothing. A while ago, I don't remember where, but some kids were playing on a a railroad track. And they were playing a game of chicken with the train, seeing if they could jump across the tracks right before the train came. And one of them died. And talk about risking your life for nothing. Like, no reward. There's nothing there. Well, Epaphroditus, he was a gambler like this. He's called a gambler here in the sense that he was risking his life. By continuing his mission to Rome, despite his life-threatening illness, he was playing with his life. He was gambling with his very life. He could have died easily. There's one major difference, of course. Epaphroditus gambled his life not for himself. He didn't do this to serve himself. He wasn't looking for personal fame or fortune. Rather, he did this to serve the Lord. He did it for the well-being of Paul and for the fame of Christ. It's like a good soldier who enlists simply to serve his country, not looking to get anything else out of it. So Epaphroditus was a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He just offered up his life 
and service. And even if such service ended up taking his life or costing him his life, I I would wager that Epaphroditus would have said, that's fine by me. Because like Paul, I imagine he would say, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And also like Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, whatever things were gained to me, those things have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That surely describes Epaphroditus as well. This is all we know about him. This is it in Scripture. It's a very short episode telling us about Epaphroditus. Most people never heard of him, never know about him. It's so small. But when you think about it, when you study, when you you search through the word, you find what an example of sacrificial service. And this brings us to lastly, number four, the example of Epaphroditus. The example of Epaphroditus. I trust by now it's already clear to you what his example is. It's a stunning example of selfless, sacrificial service. He was selfless. He wasn't doing it for himself, but for Paul and for the Lord. He was sacrificial. His labor came at great personal cost, and there was no personal reward. And he was a servant. He, he laid down his life for others in the gospel. And if you remember, that is precisely the lesson Paul was trying to teach the Philippians. And so they could learn a lot from their own guy. Like when he gets back, you guys should just look, learn from him. Do what he's doing and, and you'll be okay. Follow in his footsteps and they would find the answers to all their division and separation. I know we, we've hammered this lesson many times, but that's what Paul does in Philippians. But this, this really is the answer to all of your strife and division in the church and, and in life. Selfless, sacrificial service. That, that's the answer. What causes division? Ultimately, selfishness. It ultimately boils down to selfishness. You are driven by your own personal interests. You want something, and you're going to get it. And if people oppose you, well, conflict will result. Division will result. When you put the interests of yourself ahead of others, just a matter of time before this conflict. But try putting the interests of others ahead of yourself, and you will see just a, a supernatural unity result. This lesson is for the Philippian church. It's for us as well. Epaphroditus proves an example that we, we too need to follow. The church needs to be reminded daily that we're brethren. We're brothers and sisters in this whole thing, in the body of Christ. And so we're called to to love one another, to serve one another, as Christ did, not to divide from one another. Often we think along the lines of material needs, like, okay, I've got to serve people. When someone gets sick, I'll buy them a meal. I will serve them. And, And that's good. It's good to do something like that. And you should serve those in the body who are in material need. But I also want to point out that this call stands for serving others spiritually as well. It's all about, in all ways, caring for one another 
being concerned for one another, bearing the burdens of one another for the purposes of encouragement and accountability. The church greatly needs spiritual service as well. This comes at a cost, though. To serve like this, you have to sacrifice a bit of your time, your energy, even your comfort at times, because you're entering into the lives of one another. You know, in a way, in a way it's easy. Someone gets sick or they have a baby, like, here's a meal, here's a gift card. That's easy. If it stops there, it's almost like the easy way, okay, I served, and that's good. I don't want to disparage that because that's a good thing, but, you know, it's hard is to, like, I'm going to, this person has a spiritual need. They're maybe going through a bout of depression or they're just wrestling with the sin. To, to enter into their life. Like, I'm, I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to get into the battle with you and, and help you, pray for you daily, talk to you daily or weekly. I'm going to hold you accountable. That's way harder than buying someone a gift card. That takes time and energy, sacrificing comfort, maybe some awkwardness. But that's, that's what's needed in the church. It can be a bit messy, but think about how you can give yourself to others, to serve their needs and enter into their lives. First John, First John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Materially, yes. Spiritually, yes as well. Now I should point out, this standard, this example applies to life in the church and, and, and outside the church as well. In your home, your marriage, your relationships, that this example still stands of how to live for Christ. Any place where strife may enter, selfless, sacrificial service is the answer. So wives, joyfully serve your husbands. You're called to be their, their suitable helpers, so joyfully, lovingly serve them without complaint. And husbands, even more so, lovingly serve your wives. Don't forget, husbands, you're the ones who are straight up called to love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what you're called to do, to give yourself up for her. We're not talking about simply an emotional love here, but a sacrificial, self-giving love where you are meeting the needs of others, in this case, your spouse, even at personal cost. That's what sacrificial means. And Again, all your relationships, as you selflessly and sacrificially give of yourself in service, you're going to be serving the Lord. You're going to be pleasing the Lord. You're going to be following the Lord. And the Lord will bless that with unity, not division. And in a measure, this even applies to the world. For as you, as you go all the way to sacrificially serve those in the world, you become a living witness of the gospel. This doesn't replace the preaching of the gospel, but a life lived of, serving the, serving, uh, of service, rather, it's like serving the gospel on a golden platter. You're just highlighting its glory. Just think, why don't you share the gospel with others at times? You have the opportunity, but you, you don't do it. Why, why does it happen? Well, again, it, it boils down to selfishness. Ultimately, we're concerned about ourself and the impact 
on our, our time, our comfort, our relationship. We don't want to be inconvenienced or made uncomfortable. We don't want to be ridiculed. But you have, to, you have to stop thinking about yourself. That's your problem. And start thinking about the lost who desperately need to hear the, the message of, of Christ, the good news of the gospel, that in him alone is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God through the blood of his cross. They need to know that he paid our ransom and that only by faith in him can, can you be saved. It's true, sharing the gospel with people, it, it may cost you time, energy, comfort, or worse. But suffer this cost. Lay down your life like Epaphroditus for, for the gospel, for others. Such examples are still needed in the church, in the home, and even in the world. In William Barclay's commentary, he tells a story about a group of Christians in the early church who called themselves the gamblers. Based on that same word here we have here for riskers in Philippians, these gamblers, they purposed to minister to those in the world whom others wouldn't touch with the 10-foot pole. We're talking prisoners, the sick, the diseased, the poor. And they would proclaim the gospel to them. And they were especially noted for ministering to people who had deadly communicable diseases whom the pagans wouldn't touch, wouldn't come close to. So in AD 252, in the city of Carthage, which is on the North African coast, a severe plague broke out, killed thousands of people, was running through town. And the pagans were so frightened of the plague, they wouldn't even touch the bodies of their loved ones and bury them or, or help those who were sick. They, were just, they, they ran away. But Cyprian, who is bishop of the church there, he led the Christians to minister to the sick, the dying, the diseased, and the dead. And they buried thousands of bodies. But that, that's the example we're talking about of men like Epaphroditus and, and those who have followed in his steps, men and women, who would risk their lives for something good, serving the Lord, serving others. And this is how you make an impact on the world. Didn't Christ do it first? He gave of himself. He laid down his life, literally, in a way we can't even imagine, for us. And now the call is for you to do the same. Go, go follow him now. You do that. You be the example. Again, Philippians 3.17. Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. It's now it's time for you to fall in line to this long line of godly men and women who show us the way to Christ. And now for you to be the next link in the chain, for you to now pull others along and, and where you can say, hey, you, you follow me as I follow Christ. Rise to that level and be the example. And in the end, as you follow Christ, ultimately you will hear from your master, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and God and Redeemer, thank you for your word and, and the example set forth in it. We value the instruction of your word, but sometimes we just need an example, someone to show us the way, show us what it looks like to follow Christ in this dark world that hates us and opposes Christ still. And so we, we thank you for the imprints left behind of men like Paul and Timothy. And this morning, Epaphroditus, who in more ways than one, laid down their lives and sacrificed 
to serve others and to serve the gospel. And I pray we are convicted this morning to do the same, to consider our own lives, the legacy we're leaving behind, the example, good or bad, that we leave. And that, and that bearing conviction, Lord, we would, we would grow. And, and, and as we follow these men and women of God in Scripture and become more conformed to Christ, we would be the next generation of examples for those who will come next, who will come after us. That we can show those, those other believers how, how to live, how to follow Christ in our culture that is becoming darker and darker as well. So embolden us, Lord, encourage us, and help us to press on in, in following this long line of godly men and women after Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.